Mishka Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him. My friend JT Habersat is a wonderful person, great dude, rock solid friend incredible comedian and he does one of the worst uh, British accents I've ever heard in my fucking life like this fake uh, cockney chimney sweep orphan thing and I keep uh, I'm getting my head now of trying to open these headers with a different way of saying hello and I almost almost went into the uh, the corniest JT fake British accent greeting ever and i didn't so uh congratulations to me and hello well hello there uh hey it's mishka um got some great uh i always say this like it's a burger joint we've got some great hamburgers yeah that's what you're here for this is a podcast there's more podcasts coming up one of them is uh with my friend roberto bentavena uh who wrote house of gucci a um Lanigan friend and fan the he and I did our a little uh funny little Tesla road trip up to Flagstaff recently uh Flagstaff uh Sedona and Flagstaff I guess um and boy did we have a lot of giggles the um that one will be coming up soon uh I also did a podcast with Laura McCown uh who is a great writer uh sober returning to running the um Laura and I have never actually met the, but it definitely feels like we're um, we're tight. So that's um, that's a good pod. I'm looking forward to like re-listening to it. The today uh, we have a podcast I did uh, a while back with Joe Cardamone, who was the uh, he was the singer and architect of uh, the Icarus the Icarus line, or I guess one of the architects, um, and he was. Uh, collaborator of Lanigan's uh he did uh they did Dark Mark versus Skeleton Joe which was their two alter egos um collaborating on music and fantastic record Joe's been on my, sort of on my radar for a long time uh but we actually met for the first time at Lanigan's funeral and uh he had done this incredible thing of just making a keychain um if you're old like i am you remember when keys for hotels were actually keys and they came on a keychain and it wasn't a fucking card and uh the they give you the key when you checked in and you had to return it when you checked out otherwise you, they took your eight bucks or 12 bucks or whatever um but so he made the like an old school keychain like that that just said uh mark lanigan the night porter 1964 to 2022 and it was just such a classy gesture to um to give us a physical thing to sort of fixate our grief on or it it feels like it felt like you could attach your key to that keychain and then if you were able to stumble upon the right keyhole you could put the key in and turn it and it would unlock something and you would be able to walk back into your time with Lanigan. And um, it was just such a cool thing for him to do with such a generous thing. And, and also kind of a weird magical thing of like, I, I just, now I have this physical thing. Um, I don't know. I, I think way too much about all this stuff, but um, 
But yeah, this is a good one. I really, really enjoyed talking to Joe. This is sort of our first proper conversation because you, so you can sort of hear us uh, making friends on this podcast. Uh, I hope you dig it. Thanks. The um, it's funny. It's only ever when I do stuff with uh, with musicians where they're like, uh, "Sorry, man, I uh, can I talk to you through this cassette recorder?" Or it's like, yeah, I have a recording studio at my house, but <laughs> I don't have internet on that computer and That's nothing. Smart. That, yeah, so you know how um, you're in LA right now, right? I am. Is it uh, still seasonable and nice there? Um, no, I mean, it depends. It, it depends what day of the week it is. It's been so up and down. It's hot. It's hot this, this week, next we're week gonna, it'll be cold. We're going to hit a hundred degrees for the first time this year today. I don't even understand why people live there. Me neither. You know, the, I, I'm sober. So I get all the like inspirational shit in my Instagram feed and they always say, you know, step outside your comfort zone. And I'm like, you mean go outside? Like, way outside yeah the uh but when i you know when i the way that i moved here was sort of like i i did a solo tour for five months until i was just like talking to myself crazy and then this is sort of where the wagon broke down and wow and now i live here and i told lanigan once i you know i said you know if you're ever in phoenix you know the i got a place for you to crash or if you just need to duck out for a couple of days and he said dude i will never visit you there i'm with him he was like i appreciate the gesture and you will never see me in phoenix yeah i mean i'm trying to think the last show that i can remember that i did in phoenix uh my old band the icarus line was opening for the cult and um, the air conditioners broke in the venue in the dead of summer. Oh, my God. And no one at the venue flinched. They were like, oh, it was fine. We're doing the show. It was, Yeah, it was like a, it was some kind of like torture chamber. Yeah, the, it's like that uh, that Murder City Devils line of, uh, you know, packed in like cattle. Very I, much. Know, I can't imagine playing a show in heat like that. Well, it looked like someone had hit us with a fire hose. Yeah, came off. You know, it was just like, dude. I yeah, I, I remember doing shows in like Ohio in August. We played a uh, my old band played like a second story um, club, and and they had AC, and the AC was working, and still just the combination of the heat and the humidity. By the time we got off, it looked like I'd been overboard. Couldn't you know? compete. Yeah, there's no competing with that many bodies. You got to have like a real, real like decent unit. Yeah. You know, there was, there was this club in uh, Corona, which is like outside of LA by like an hour and a half called the showcase theater. Um, that did a lot of, like a lot of punk shows, like crust, hardcore, whatever, whatever was like a little bit too crazy. Like body count would play there because no one would do body count shows in LA proper. And the, the owner, it was like a 300, 400 cap. The owner was known to shut off the AC so that people would buy water because it was all ages. You know, just vicious shit. It's funny, you know, that when 
we conceptualize about the sort of, you know, punk rock or indie or DIY community. One of the things that we think about is sort of like taking care of people, um, you know, taking, taking care of people who other people haven't cared for. And then there's the like, um, oh, you know, all ages DIY clubs, fostering community, um, you know, bringing, bringing new people in and turning off the AC unit in a predatory fashion to fucking make money for kids buying water because they're dying. It, totally. It's, it's, it was one of those spots where like the owner was definitely not into the music whatsoever, but he had figured out, I don't know through what he had figured out that this was like a good business venture at the time. You know, um, he was this like Iranian dude that was in his fifties and had only ex cons working for him too, which, you know, in general, that's okay. But when you have like punk kids and ex cons, like ex cons as security, I mean, I've seen people's face get smashed into the stop sign in front yeah. of the menu on multiple occasions where it just like, you know, there's 17 year old kids getting like thrown, like, you know, rag dolls across the parking lot. Yeah. I, I worked at uh, Knitting Factory in New York for a while uh, when okay. I was still in Manhattan. I'm yeah. sure Icarus Line played there. Yeah, definitely. The, definitely um, with Dead Meadow and 400 Blows. Oh, yeah. I, I know Dead Meadow. Those guys are great. The um, and, I, and I remember 400 Blows. I feel like the I, I was in bands that were touring where I, we would see their stickers in the bathrooms and stuff like that. You know what I mean? The, yeah. There's the, I feel like we were on the road around the same time that, to, to see each other's stickers and shit. And circuit. Yeah. yeah. The, um, all right, well, fuck it. Let's plunge into this. The, cool. the, the first thing I want to say is, um, dude, those keychains that you made. Thank you so much for that. That it was, it was just, they, um, an incredibly beautiful and thoughtful thing that you did. And it's, it's bizarrely, I, you know, I've been thinking so much about grief and loss and celebrity and art and creation and stuff like that. And the, um, it's so meaningful for us to have a thing, a physical thing and looking at it, that it's not, you know, a fucking ashtray from Mark's house when I was cat sitting for him or something like that. You know, the, um, when I, when I look at that keychain, it, um, it doesn't make me just think of him. It makes me think of you and all the other people who are grieving him. And, you know, one of the things that, um, it's fucked up. It's like the opposite of schadenfreude. Like one of the things that makes you feel better when you're grieving is to see other people who are also grieving. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, it, it's like the, the communal pain that there's more pain than just one person makes it, you know, lessens it on each, each of us. The, um, so thank you for that. Thank you. know, thank you so much for that. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like, uh, the least I could do and, Really all like, you know, it was, it, it's been hard to think of ways to properly um, tribute and address a close friend like that. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if I told you that I had a similar brass keychain already on my keys oh, from, wow. from when John Lennon died um, because my dad was at the memorial here in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. And that's kind of where the, the idea stemmed from because it's on my keychain now he gave it to me years later and i guess i was at the memorial but i was like one year old 
Uh Um, and, uh, seeing that and maybe having some kind of like physical manifestation to, uh, commemorate, you know, someone that like meant a great deal to you. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's helpful or not, but to me, it seemed like I wanted, I just wanted to figure out some way to, um, make everyone feel like family a little bit. Yeah. The, one of the things I've been sort of turning over, thinking about and turning over in my head lately, sometimes you, like a lyric comes to you, but it's not fully formed and you have to wrestle with it for a day or a month or six months, you know, the, and one of the, every once in a while I'll be like cleaning my house and stumble upon a thing that belonged to one of my exes. Yeah. And it, it feels like the, you know, it, like a bobby pin, I find I find bobby pins and uh, single earrings or like guitar picks or shit like that. And they all look kind of like keys. And yeah. it's like I have a key into that other world, which is cool. But also that other world has a key into me. Yeah, that's not cool. And with the keychain, it, you know, not to not to hit it over the head with the symbolism and stuff. But it, it's like I have um, it feels like we have a key back to that time that we spent with our hero, our friend, our mentor, um, and also the, you know, a key, like you said, a family, you know, you belong to the group of people who were there and who cared about him. And, uh, I don't know. It was just, it was an amazing gesture. So I just, the, I want to address that out of the gate, you know, that that was, it was just so thoughtful of you. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I mean, shouldering grief is like such a bizarre thing that we do, you know, as, as humans. I mean, it's like, uh, I, I don't, I don't know too much about it, but I guess we've been doing it as long as people have been dying, you know? And, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a strange thing because, um, doing it together intensifies it in a way to where, um, you're almost, uh, speed grieving in, 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 you know, it's like this excess and outpouring of like pain, you know, and everybody's shouldering the same pain at the same time. And it, even though it's maybe, um, more potent than it would be if you just kind of like walked through it on your own and let it pass through you this way, um, everybody kind of really gets to like be there for support while you really kind of like feel the extent of the gravity of, you know, the loss that you're experiencing and that, and you experience everybody else's loss at the same time. And there's something about that, that, uh, I I don't know if it helps you to let go, but it just helps you to, to process it. And, you know, you feel a little less alone, you know, I, I read a lot of comic books when I was a kid and I remember reading one where, uh, they had given the flash like some drug and it was just that his, metabolism was so fast that he just sort of like shivered and sort of worked his way through it. And then he could go and, I don't know, do whatever the, you know, run around fast. Yeah. And, um, I used to go to the Russian and Turkish baths in New York and, you know, you would be there, you know, with, it was cool because it was so democratic. There would be like models and MMA fighters and then, you know, hedge fund bros who are sleeping off a bender or who are trying to get over their, you know, Coke and martini bender the day before. And you could smell the alcohol coming out of them. Yeah, I bet. And, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what it felt like for me going to the service. Like, I'm so, I don't really do funerals in general, but this one I felt like I had to. Yeah. And it was, man, it was so helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know, uh, it, it also, you know, I grew up like going to Catholic school and like I was an altar boy and all that shit. So, you know, I was raised in the church a little bit. And um, it was, you know, a lot of the funerals that I've been to have been semi-religious, you know, which I think a lot are. This was one, one of the, you know, r- rare occasions that uh, it was just people speaking, which um, in some ways I, I kind of reflected upon it and was like, man, that was way rougher than a religious service because the religious services you you get to disassociate it's not all about um the loss of that person you know there's kind of like this like sort of you know whether you're into god or not there's like this disassociative spiritual element so that you're able to kind of breathe you know in between the um process of letting go and uh you know when you do something like this where it's just you know wall to wall people kind of like sharing their uh, memories of the person that everyone's missing it's tough man it's it that it, it's really yeah it's a potent moment it's really it, i found it tough it was it's funny man because the cuz mark had such a twisted sense of humor and the it was it was a very lanigan funeral you know, yeah. he, the looking out and seeing, you know, everybody dressed in black. I was like, all these motherfuckers have no other color of clothes in their closets. Anyway, this is what they were going to wear today anyway. And yeah. then to, to have his funeral be so, um, so intense, yeah. you know, and to just have it be sort of all the suffering out on display, the, that's, that's a very Lanigan move, you know? I mean, you know, even though he wasn't a dramatic character in his day-to-day life, he definitely knew how to bring the rain within the art, you know? So, yeah, it, it's, he went, he went out how he, how he was in real life, you know? It's, it's funny that, you know, cause, um, you're a singer and you come from a background of, um, I don't know, performance. Like we, the, that was one of the things that I dug about your band is that you guys put everything into it and left it all, you know, there on the stage and the, um, and Mark did that in a very different way, you know, that, um, you know, we both played in sort of frantic bands where there was a lot of sort of physical energy and, and Mark, Mark's, um, the way Mark handled it was, completely opposite where he was like, I'm going to stand in one spot and I'm going to make the rest of the fucking world just spin out around me. And he had that, he had that weight and not, you know, there's not a lot of singers who can do that. Yeah. I mean, there's few singers that can do that. He was, you know, he was a statue. That's what I always thought of him. When I saw him on stage, I was like, this dude's a fucking statue, you know? And like all, it seemed like everything was kind of divining towards his voice and that's what that's what propelled any energy at all from him and so that's i don't know it's kind of a genius thing though because then you just really focused on what was coming out of dude's mouth and like i don't know if a lot of people like know but to have like such a low voice usually you wouldn't uh think that it's going to be loud 
you know, because right. when people sing in a lower register, it's tends not to be loud, but man, he was fucking loud. You know, he was such a loud singer and he doesn't, it doesn't sound like it on record to me per se, but like, yeah, his volume was like stunning, you know? So who knows what he was cooking in the furnace, you know, he was just standing there cooking, you know, it was amazing to see though. We, we talked about singing once and singing on tour where you have to turn it out day after day. And the, you know, I said that when, if I was eating like dairy or sugar, I would get phlegm in my throat and yeah. it would fuck me up. And he was, he looked at me and he was like, nah, that, that shit's good for you. You got to have something to hang on to. Right. Fucking Atlanta getting like, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I don't, I don't even know a vocal warm up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And not that I'm some kind of uh, you know, I'm not Freddie Mercury over here, but uh, you know, besides having a cigarette and hopefully a steak, I've never, you know, I've never really known what else to do. Yeah. The, but also, I mean, I'm, I'm, have you had the experience of being on tour where you're starting to lose your voice and you're, you're throwing anything and everything at it to try to turn out the next show or once, once, once wow. out of like years. Yeah. My voice is like a, it's like a iron trap, man. It just, it never goes, you know, it actually wow. gets better. You know, yeah, the yeah. I've, I, I've had that too, where it, it's like, it takes a while to get broken in or warmed up or whatever. And then for sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. Only once. And, uh, I don't know if I was sick or what was going on and uh, it was in Japan and it's on YouTube and it's terrible. <laughs> so may all of our worst moments on stage be preserved forever on YouTube. You know, just the, yeah, exactly. That's pretty much what is up there. You know, it never the, never the flattering moment where you're like, wow, we just, we won the Olympics tonight, you know? Stan Hope has a bit about that, about people taping his shows and, you know, not that his issue is with, with people taping it, but that they're going to tape the bad shows and they're going to, they won't know how to, you know, it's like if, if you were a decent camera person, like I'd be all for it. I don't give a shit about my material The you know, just, just do a good job. Right. I actually wrote to someone once because it was so bad and I, I was like, too man just take this one down like no one needs to see it and he did it he was cool oh he was that's like, cool that's yeah, cool. yeah he was like yeah no worries it was just like this is just knowing that's out there is gonna make me like slightly suicidal or something so like let's not do this yeah the mark mentioned to me once that he we were talking about when screaming trees were out with nirvana and the um they played at uh roskilda and he oh, yeah. he was like in a blackout and trying to fight the sound engineer and stuff like that. And he was like, "Oh, it's the oh, it's the worst, like most humiliating thing ever." And of course, it's up on YouTube. And <laughs> I went and searched it out because my relationship with Mark was rocky enough while we were editing the book that there yeah. were times where I wondered if he was going to swing on me. Yeah. And so I actually studied that video to see what he did with his hands, what he did with his arms before he threw a punch. So that if, because he was a big fucking dude, you know? I mean, yeah, he was a formidable presence for sure. You know, he, there's no, uh, there, there was no fucking around with him. I mean, I never saw him get too crazy on anyone. There was a couple shows, you know, there was one in Paris where the lighting guy I think was new and, uh, he had this light just blasting him in the face. And uh, during the song, he yelled something at the guy. He's like, if you don't fucking turn that thing down, man, I'm coming up there. <laughs> and, uh, the guy panicked 
and hit all the buttons and all the lights went off and that was it you know it was just screaming and but you know i get it you know the guy's like he's he's fucking up the show so yeah you know it's it's appropriate but uh yeah i can imagine i mean you know while he was writing the book you know we were in in touch a lot and i know that it was not easy and I know that he was like, I'm never going to fucking do this again. You know, he yeah. just, it was the, and I, and I can imagine cause just making music feels like that for me, you know, it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to, you know, cut my life up into a million parts and put them on a table, you know? Um, but it, yeah, it seemed, it seemed to really, uh, it really took a toll on him to, I guess, probably just to be honest and to remember, just to remember is hard enough. You know, it's, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, I feel I feel really conflicted about it because the the only way that the book happened was from me um, inserting myself into his life and pestering him and nagging him and badgering him to to do this thing that I you know that I was convinced that he could do and that that he needed to do and and that I was convinced too that the book would bring him peace that it would that there would be a kind of rapprochement with his ghosts or the people he'd wronged or, or whatever. And that it would, that he would feel better. And he was uh, pretty clear and pretty to the point with me about it, that none of that ever happened. (laughs) (laughs) He never got any of the, never got any of the release from doing that. Um, Just the, I mean, you know, the grieving in fast forward, uh, yeah. Like you described, you know, as he was, you know, going back and sort of doing this, exhuming this graveyard, you know, of his um, his early life, his life in Ellensburg, his life in Seattle. I, I think there might have been some of that, even if he didn't really mention it to you. You know what I mean? Because he's the kind of guy that would, you know, even if it did bring him some peace, I don't know if he would have he would have really admitted to it, you know, just because it was he was so sensitive, you know, so like probably the over the just how overwhelming it was to like trudge through those memories. Yeah. That was probably the dominant force, but I think hopefully, hopefully he did feel some sort of peace because he made something great, you know, and that's, you know, there's gotta be some, some sense of completion and satisfaction in that because he knew it was good, you know, and people told him it was good and it's just good. That's all there is to it. It's good writing. He did a good book, you know, Thank you for saying that, man. It's um, it's such a weird position that I found myself in of sort of like the entering into a working relationship with one of my few remaining musical heroes and then us getting to take this incredible creative journey together. And it was such a tight rope walk. And then uh, at the end of it to have him be like, well, thanks for nothing. I was like, Mark, you motherfucker, you're killing me. You know, but a little bit down the road, he spoke of it more favorably. At least to me, he did. You know, like he. You know, I know that he he considered you uh, an invaluable part of making the book and helping him get through. The, you know, what was not an easy thing to write, and it it wasn't just. I mean, at least from my perspective, it wasn't just difficult because of the subject matter. It was difficult because of the voice he chose, you know, because how he kind of picked to not be the hero of the story, which is 
how Mark is anyways, you know, that's yeah. how he is in real life. That's how, you know, he's, he's not like uh, trying to bolster himself up, you know? So he didn't, I mean, that's what makes it shine in my opinion is that he's not, he's not the hero of the story. You know, he's telling it from this other perspective that is just, uh, you don't see, you don't see that in literature all the time. You know, the, the, the center of the story is always the hero. And in his book, it's just not, you know, which is, I don't know. That's what makes it endearing to me, you know, but that's got to make it hard. That's the hard part, you know, is like having to come at it from this place of like, you know, um, feeling like the bad guy in a lot of situations. Yeah. I mean, Mark had a ruthless commitment to, um, both to being honest, um, and to punishing himself. Yeah. And fortunately in this story, he could do both of those things at the same time, you know, but the, but as a, as a reader, as a writer, as an editor, as a student of narrative, the, there's no, there's no worse story than, you know, that somebody can tell you than the one, you know, where they're like, and then I really showed that guy or like, I showed all those fuckers and I won. We don't care about those stories as human beings. We're like, we want the catastrophe porn. You want, you know, and yeah, and that divorce, you know, broke me down lower than it, I've, I've ever been before. And I feel like I've never recovered the end. You know, totally. like we, we love that shit. Totally. Unless it's a Marvel movie, but that's not like, that's not what he, he's, that's not what he was about. You know? Um, I mean, I don't really read rock and roll books a lot anyways, you know, I've only read yeah. a couple. Um, but I wouldn't even consider that book a rock and roll book, you know? Yeah. I mean, he and I were on the same page, you know, from the get go with this was that we didn't want it to be like, you know, the, the dollar vent or the, the dollar menu version of a fucking Motley Crue book or something like that. We wanted it to be yeah. a piece of literature and we were looking at, you know, like Cormac McCarthy yeah. and, um, Ikiyu, this, you know, uh, 15th century Japanese, you know, warrior monk, you know, and you know, real, real writing, real books, the, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't want it to be, you know, my, my zany life with the screaming trees, you know? Yeah. The, the music portion just seems like a backdrop for what's, what's going on internally throughout the entire thing. You know, he, when, when I read it, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm like, it seems more like a, there's this dude that's like a part-time crack dealer that plays music on the side. You know what I mean? Like that's how it came across to me. And I was, I was like, that's sounds like my life back yeah. in the day. You know I mean? Yeah. I'll tell you this. There's not a lot of books that I've read where I was in tears at the end and his book, I actually, yeah. Which is nuts. You know what I mean? I've, I've read all kinds of stuff and like his book, I was actually in tears at the end. You know, I really, it really yeah. hit, hit me. It's, you know, there's not a lot of narratives that I would, where I would say, you know, describe as a harrowing tale yeah you know but it's really and joe it was you know as somebody who who admired his work who looked up to him you know he was my friend to watch all this unfolding in real time you know to see him you know because he would write some of these chapters in a day or two days so yeah. you're, you're seeing you know one of your your favorite most beloved people in the world just um crawl on his hands and knees through fucking 500 miles of broken glass. Yeah. You know? And it was, and he did it with great courage and, um, he did it with, you know, with an unflinching eye and 
who fucking does that? Yeah. Not, you know, the, not a lot of people. I mean, let's put it this way. I found Scott Weiland's autobiography in a dumpster mm-hmm. a few months ago. And like, just grabbed it because it was like in a dumpster and I'm like, well, it probably belongs here, but I'm just going (laughs) to grab this thing, you know? And I read it in like two hours and it's, you know, it couldn't contrast any, any further from Mark's book, you know, it's just terrible. And like the themes are similar because, you know, it's like a drug addiction and uh, playing in bands and broken relationships, but man, it's like, it, it, it's not even the same thing at all. There, it couldn't be any further from it. Um, lo- losing, uh, losing Mark as a friend is one thing, but also after reading that, I was just excited what he would write next. You know, I feel like he was just starting to like do something else that he was really good at. You know, it was like, oh, wow, yeah. like you're really good at this, man. So keep going, keep writing. We you know, we had talked about a bunch of different projects going forward and like what the next book would be and what it wouldn't be. Yeah. The, and, and that's one of the things about his writing about his work. And that's one of the reasons why I like fucking grilled him to, to do it, to make it happen is because he had, um, you know, like, uh, junkie and queer by William Burroughs, Herbert Mm -hmm. hunky, the, um, Bukowski Lanigan had a legit, outsider voice you know and 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 when you read rock bios they weren't they were written by a fucking ghostwriter first of all the and and mark did all his work you know i i was like the i was present in the delivery room you know the and i talked to him you know through um a lot of it and we fought i was like you can't fucking do that you got to do this also the here i'll say this the God damn it, Mark. He did that fucking podcast with uh, Joseph Arthur. And yeah. in that podcast, he said, oh, you know, I would have all these fights with Mishka. And he would say, you can't do this and you can't do that. And then I would do it and, like, show him. And, like, that's not fucking true, Lanigan. And you know it. <laughs> like, I fucking won at least half of those, you know, where I was like, you can't have, you know, the the dream within a dream inception bullshit. Like, no, you can't fucking do that, man. But there were the standalone chapter for Jeffrey Lee Pierce. I was like, yeah. all right, you can do that. You can just hit pause on the, they do that in musicals. There's always a musical number that encapsulates the whole, you know, and he did it so well. I was like, all right, you know, we gotta, we gotta let it roll. That's what made it cool. Honestly, that's what made it unique. That's what made it like worth reading, you know? Um, yeah, I was, I was so, I mean, I was egging him on to do the next 20 years and I knew that wasn't going to happen no matter what. But, you know, it was like, hey, man, just change the names or something, you know, like, let's go. You know, this was this was so good. But, you know, I think that was probably an impossible task to kind of like dive into that that part of his life. But, man, it would have been it would have been cool because I know I know the stories, you know, like even the stories from the book. I had heard, you know, a great deal of them just from like talking over the years, you know, like I was I was hearing him tell stories that he's told me like 10 years ago and knowing the stuff that happened after it, I was like, man, this, this is, you know, his life was potent all the way through. The, um, I actually found my notepad from my first visit with him at his place in LA where we just sat in, you know, in the living room there and talked and he told me, 
you know, he, he told me a lot of the stories that ended up, you know, making their way into the book. And I go back and like, look at my notes, you know, and the, you know, there's like one line where he said, uh, I could always drink gin, yeah. you know, and, and that's the way that Mark spoke is that in one line, uh, the man walks right back into the room. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the, just reading one line of his writing or the way that he spoke and he's just, um, he's just there again, you know, yeah. and, and that's what a singular, a singular mind. He was a singular talent, a singular voice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the chapter about leaving the tour and trying to cop dope in, uh, Amsterdam, was it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the 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 bird man. Man, that one is amazing. You know, it's, it's just so it, wild. So cinematic. You know, it's like it was like a, I was watching the film of his life while I'm reading that. It was just it was amazing to me. You know, that that's the one that like I was like, man, this guy, he nailed it. It's wild because that chapter in particular feels like magical realism. It it feels like um uh, the Painted Bird by Jerzy Kaczynski. Yeah. And the It feels, it's so wild that it feels like fiction. But but the thing is, when you go through as a reader and you stress test it at a, at a, at a paragraph level, at a sentence level, at a word level, you'll find that the structure holds because it's unbelievably, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, that's I mean, that's what's so crazy about it is it's that's that was his real life, you know, and uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I, you know, it's it's definitely intimidating to anyone else who wants to write a write a book about, you know, their life in music. Well, so what's ironic is Mark and I had found a structure for um, for the next book. Yeah. And we were talking about it with um, publishers and agents. And, you know, I came up with a premise for him where it was basically um, a fictional memoir. And the, you know, the working title was Mark Lanigan is Dead. And then the title that we landed upon was um, Methamphetamine Blues, where it's sort of a, uh, you know, obviously taken from one of his songs. um, And, to write it as a love story to a drug, you know, yeah. and the, we even had the stru- structure mapped out. And then I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at the, it went sideways. You know, yeah. the, I, you know, I think there were issues with the publisher, the, um, I think one of them, I, I feel like the overseas publishers, dropped the ball on something and then there was an issue with that and he was frustrated and and he and I fought you know and I'll be honest about that the um I mean I I would fight with him while we were making the record not not viciously but you know there was always a tug of war you know because that's just what happens in collaborations with Mark you know what I mean he he would feel a certain way about I mean let's put it this way on the dark mark record uh I had been mixing the fucking thing for like two months, just trying to make it good, mm-hmm. you know, and really, cause I just want I want to make him proud. You know, that's like one of my main goals here is like, I want him to feel like he did this for a reason, you know? So I want the thing to be great. And, uh, 
a week before I'm going to turn it in, he wants to bring like five songs back from the grave that we haven't talked about in a year, you know? And all of a sudden I have to resurrect these dead animals from the pet cemetery and, uh, you know, figure out how they fit in, in, you know, into the, the scheme of this basically done record. And he wants to get rid of two that I've been like crushing for weeks to make them right. Yeah. You know? Um, and that's just how it was. And in the end, you know, he won, he won. Like I, I was like, all right, he wasn't going to back down. You know what I mean? He wasn't going to back down. And I'm just, you know what? I'm, I was grateful to be able to do the, the project together. It was like, you know what? I don't give a fuck. This is my friend. If he, if he feels this, this strongly about it, I'm going to just go forward with it. But that's who he was, man. I mean, like down to the track listing, we were, you know, to the day before we were, we were like arm wrestling over what the last song's going to be. Joe, it makes me feel so relieved to hear that shit. The, um, it's, I mean, maybe things are different now. Maybe this is how it's always been. The, you know, playing, playing rock and roll in New York in the early 2000s, I felt like there was so much um, prickliness in the scene of just sort of the... <laughs> when when my old band Fresh Kills broke up, somebody commented on the, like, Brooklyn Vegan post. Um, let me see if I can recall it from memory. The... Uh, <laughs> Good songs, average musicians, not nice people. Yeah, and we were so proud. We were. I was like, that's that's basically what we wanted to do. You know the, but there there I feel like there is unfortunately there is a certain amount of sort of uh, prickliness or the chest bumping or whatever the, and that was the thing with Lanigan is that to. To, to try to go head into a clash with him was fucking suicide because I mean, he was, he was so, he was so tough. He was such a hard ass. And I think, I think that was one of the things about, I wanted to ask you about collaborating with him because there must've been points of contention where you were just the, you know, like, what the fuck do I do? Do I fight for what I believe is right? Or do I just, you know, give over to the immovable object that is Mark Lanigan? It was pick your battles, you know, um, with me, it was pick your battles. Also the fact that he cared enough to fight made me just, you know, when he cared enough to fight over something, then I, I could like feel good about acquiescing, you know, it was like, if you feel this strongly about it, that means you give a fuck all right, we're cool, you know? Um, and I think he was the same way with me, you know, when there was something that I was just like, no way you're fucking crazy. Like this is, this is, it's gotta go down like this. Um, he, he would slide over and, and let it roll. You know what I mean? Yeah. Plus in general, the making of it was so easy. Like the actual, uh, you know, process of building the record was just so easy. I mean, we, our roles were established really, really quickly. And, um, it just, it was such a, it was, it was like a a cakewalk in a lot of ways, you know, because I was making, uh, instrumentals, you know, five a day and sending them to them. And they were coming back with vocal ideas and lyrics, 
he would text me the lyrics and the vocal idea. And then a day later, we'd go in the studio, knock it out. And that would be it. So making it was so uh, kind of relaxed that when it came down to sort of sequencing it and, uh, you know, putting the thing together, he definitely had strong opinions. But it was it was such a cool experience just like making the thing that at that point I felt like uh, these are all minor points of contention when the the project is what it is, you know, it's already, it's already a great thing. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to worry about minutia at this point, you know, there's this thing that happens, a visual thing that happens again and again in like uh, corny sci-fi movies where the, you know, it's, it's blood or it's alien slime or it's molten metal or whatever the, and it splashes onto like a stone surface. And then there's the lines etched into it and you see the metal, the, the liquid metal flowing because the lines have been cut. It knows where to go, you know, the, and that was one of the things with Lanigan's creativity is that the narrative, the lyrics, the words that, creative energy had been flowing through him for such a long time at such high velocity that there just seemed to be um there's a clip of like you know um jay-z hearing the beat for uh brush your shoulders off or whatever that yeah the first time and you could see him instantly he's like oh that's it that's you know the and mark was the same way that he he was a conduit you know yeah as soon as as yeah, soon as he, there was that little spark, it just burst into flame. Yeah, he was a conduit. There was no second guessing where it came from, you know, where some of us may struggle with that from time to time. Like, where is this coming from? And why am I saying this? Or, what, you know, thinking about why, you know, he hardly did that. You know, um, maybe maybe after the fact he would question things. But as it was going down, uh, it just, you know, he he was like captured in flow state. A lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, which is, which is, uh, inspiring as fuck, you know, when you get to be around that, you know, it reminds you of how you can do that in your own life. You know, it's like a reminder of like, oh yeah, this is, this is just fun. Remember this is just stupid. Like just be dumb and it'll work. There were, there have definitely been times being around him where, I, you know, I'm very blocked as an artist and it takes a lot of work to get stuff to come out. The, and a lot of times I feel like I have to sneak up on a lyrical conceit or, um, you know, I'm falling asleep and I have to get up and write or I wake up in the morning and I have to write before I wake up. But, um, there, there were times where I wondered the, with all the, the drinking and the drugs and the times he'd been in and out of comas and stuff. If he had just given himself the sweet spot of brain damage where he had just destroyed all the obstacles to creativity. Right. And I was like the, where do I go for that treatment? Can they just hook me up and zap me so that I just, you go down to the park, you go down to the park (laughs) and get a bag, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, they're selling it by the, you know, by the quarter, you know, it's, <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's no mystery, you know, that Miles Davis was who he was or John Coltrane was who he was, you know, because sometimes, you know, uh, a little bit of armor will help you like uh, open your heart, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not an advocate for anything because, 
everyone has their own way, but you know, a lot of my favorite records were made by people who were wearing armor while they made it, you know? It's, I mean, it's funny cause that, that armor or that insulation is the, it's the, it, it like, it gives you a protective buffer, but then also there's something about it that lets you be, um, raw or, you know, yeah. it's like the more of the unprotected pink of your heart can seep out or you feel uh, safe, yeah. you know, you feel yeah. safe, you feel safe to say what you want to say. And, uh, you know, the, the judgment of the world doesn't weigh as heavy, you know, and I think that's part of it that it's, you know, it's, it's weird to, to fucking take things for a health goth turn. But the, that's one of the things that I appreciate about running long distances is that after you run 18, 20, 25 miles, all that, all the, all the shit that you put up, it all comes down and you're very in touch with, um, how you're feeling, who you're missing, uh, what you're grieving, you know, yeah. the, um, so much other shit just, you know, sort of slips away. Yeah. It reduces. Yeah. The, um, how did you meet Mark? When did you meet Mark? I want to like, as, as a fan of yours, as a fan of his, as a fan of the record, I, it feels necessary to me to trace the sort of, uh, the etymology or like where the, how'd you guys meet each other? Like, how did the, how'd your friendship start and how did it bring you to this record? I would say, I don't know the exact year. I want to say it's like 2003 or 2004, somewhere around there. Um, the Icarus line, I, I, I'm not sure if Penance had come out, but I think it was like on its way out or it just come out. And through management or booking agents or whatever sort of channels, we were offered to open a couple shows for Queens of the Stone Age to be the main support. And they were in the Northwest, these shows, <clears throat> which for us was a, uh, you know, that was a, that was a big deal, you know, because there wasn't a good deal of bands that we could, uh, you know, perform with that, like maybe would be a sympathetic audience, you know, it was just, mm -hmm. you know, it was, that had an audience that big, you know, they yeah, had, a, yeah. they had a, it was right when they're putting out songs for the deaf too. So there was similar times, you know? So being able to perform for like what seemed like could be a sympathetic audience was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is good. Um, and I think it, I think the first show was in Portland and the word down the pipeline was if we do good at these shows, if the shows go off well, then we can hop on the rest of the tour, which would have been an even bigger win. Yeah. Um, so we got, you know, we had our, we had our shit together. We were, we were light, lighting dynamite, you know, we were ready to go out there and just like tear it up. And we did, we played and it felt like we were headlining. I, to this day, there's been very, very few reactions from audiences like there was on those shows where, uh, you know, they they, they were looking at us like they knew every song, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing. And, um, at the end of the set, you know, no one in that band really said hi to us. We weren't the most friendly characters anyways. So everyone kind of went to their corners, you know, and like sat with their own cut men and were just hanging out. Um, except Mark was kind of in this common area. And to be honest, I wasn't like a huge Screaming Trees fan. Me and either. I knew maybe like the 
one hit. You know what I mean? I just didn't, you know, it wasn't like on my radar. So he was, he was just kind of coming onto my radar from that group as like, Oh, who is this guy? You know what I mean? And, um, even though he'd been going for years and, uh, I don't remember if, I think I might've walked up to him or he walked up to me, but it was one of those things where it's two cool guys leaning against a wall next to each other, not saying anything, you know? And, uh, I had heard that he had like fought someone in the opening band a week before. So of course I'm going to go stand next to the guy, like a total (laughs) fool, you know? And I'm standing there and, you know, he's got his black beady eyes out and uh, (laughs) he like looks over at me and he's just like, I just want to tell you, uh, that was really great. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I, Penance is a great record. And I'm like, what? Like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? And I, I didn't even, I, I, that's all I remember is like his yeah. opening line was like so complimentary and friendly that also, it really blew me away. Also, there's something about the specific fucking rock and roll hierarchy of who's on the bill and who's getting paid and who's Heineken is that and all that shit. And for Lanigan to say, I'm your fan is inverting that whole hierarchy. Totally. Totally. And having like, you know, I wasn't courageous enough to be like, yo, that was that song you sang tonight was cool or whatever. You know, we're just like standing there smoking cigarettes and that's how he opens up the conversation. Yep. You know what I mean? What a fucking G, you yeah. know? And uh, I didn't think too much of it, you know, except for like, wow, that was nice. That was cool, you know? And then we, I don't think we talked for another like year and a half or to whenever Bubblegum came out. Oh God, yeah. And then uh, out of the blue, I get a call that he wanted the Icarus Line to open up the Bubblegum tour. And that's when that's when we really kind of like, you know, that's when we locked in and kind of sized each other up. And we we spent, I don't know, two weeks on the road, you know, in the States, like opening up for that tour. It was Oliveri was like the other act on the tour singing uh-huh. acoustic, which was wild, like a dude screaming over acoustic guitars. You know, it was just like, this is fucking wild. And, you know, if you know anything about Lanigan's life, uh, or heard anything about the Icarus line, you can only imagine what that tour was like. You know, it was like, it was a miracle that a show happened at all, you know? And to be honest in Seattle, he didn't even show up for that show. We ended up headlining, you know what I mean? It was nuts. You know, it was, it was that period, you know, where it was just like, yeah, this is full on. But, um, but he was always gracious and always protective. And after that, you know, uh, that record's, you know, that record's a uh, pretty close to a perfect record, you know, it, um, it, it changed my life. I will absolutely say that. And, and that gets good. harder and harder to do as you get older, you know, to, to let a record in like that, but that record it's, it's massive. I mean, I still, when, you know, when it comes on my fucking phone, <laughs> that was one thing about the, the, you know, the reception at the funeral is that I was like, well, I approve of this party because they're just playing Lanigan tunes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, there's, there's a good handful on there that, you know, could make you cry on a, on a warm summer day. You know what I mean? It's it's that kind of shit. Um, But yeah, after that, I just had never lost respect for him. You know, he was just, even, even 
though we were all basically wild animals on crack at that point, he was still like a gracious host, even, even though he was withdrawn. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. we all were, but there was still like this care to it. You know, there was still this like notion of we're kindred spirits and that's why you're here, you know? And after that, um, yeah, you know, he stepped into my life multiple times to save my ass. Yeah. The, I, so I, I never met you, you know, when Mark was alive, I, you know, I knew that you guys were pals. I knew that you hung out and that you were doing stuff. The, um, but you know, when I, the, you know, the few times I went over to his house, we, we were, we were working, you know, I would show up and just do, you know, we'd do whatever. And then, um, and then bounce the, one of the things that I, it's funny, man, that I have, this is shitty, but I have to say it. The, when we were at the service and you were talking and you, you talked about how generous Lanigan was, I watched like four other people twitch and be like, what the, because he wasn't that way with me. He was, he was a tight fisted motherfucker. And it was always like, I'll get you on the next one, bro. And I'm like, no, fuck you. Get me now, dude. Get me now. Like, why am I fucking buying you coffee? But what I got out of that was that he had a different relationship with you that, you know, it seemed, it really seemed that he was sort of, that you were like his little brother, you know, that he, um, he was, you know, trying to take care of you and stuff. Yeah, man. I mean, through through like everything, through all the years I've known him, anytime I asked for anything, and I would always feel guilty asking, you know, for help because I just, you know, I don't, you know, it's it's never easy to ask for help. He would he would make it feel like uh, I was doing him a favor. You know, like he would, that's who he was to me, man. He would be like, he would make it feel like, no, I'm doing you a favor by bringing you out here. I'm doing you a favor. Take these fucking paintings and sell them if you get in a tight spot. I mean, he was that, he was, that's how he was to me, man. And uh, like an irreplaceable person in my life, really. You know, it's, it's one of those things where it's a, yeah, I can't I can't really imagine anybody ever really even treating me like that again because that's it's it's incredible, you know? It it was incredible, you know, like uh anytime I doubted myself or needed strength, I mean, he was on my case. You know, I re- I recorded two albums before the pandemic. Um, you know, like 15 song albums and then just shelved them because they just didn't seem to really make sense the way the world was. And I was just like, I'm putting these away. You know, they just didn't, they didn't ride. Um, But he would still be on my case, you know, I mean, to have someone like that being like, you got to put this shit out. It's fucking genius. Like, what are you doing? You know, and he would ride me like that. You know, he was on top of me, like trying to get me to like, I don't know. He, he wanted me to, uh, you know, dip into the world more than I was ever comfortable with. Um, yeah, just incredible. He, he was like a bully who wanted good things for you. And he would yeah. like bully you to do good shit. You know, the like, you know, 
no, I fucking believe in you. Like, get up and go do that thing, you know? And, totally. Yeah. I mean, he was also, like, the champion of the underdog. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I, he, Yeah, he never lost sight of that, that no matter how regardless of the accolades that he got and the recognition that he got for his work, he never, um, never saw himself as removed from somebody living under a fucking bridge, you know? Totally. Um, yeah, there's that. And also just the, you know, um, I think he, he saw himself as like, his opinion was like, unfettered you know what i mean like his opinion yeah. was just he wasn't he wasn't like uh susceptible to trend or influence which is that's so rare man you know someone who is just like standing in their in their own opinion on things that's just you know you don't get that a lot especially in music you know um what, one of the things yeah. that i think made it easy that actually made it easy to work with him is you never had to guess how he felt about a thing. Never. You know, the, how many times have you been fucking mixing something with someone and they're like, ah, that's fine. You're like, well, yeah. nah, like, are you, you're tired or you want to meet your girlfriend or you're, you're telling me to fuck off. It's not yeah. fine. It's, yeah. it's good or it's not good. And you never had to do any of that follow-up with Lanigan to be like, what? No, Mark, tell me how you really feel. Like he would, he would let you know good or bad or, you know, the. For sure. And, and there was no like assumed roles or hierarchy that way either. You know, it was just like lay it out on the table um, and we can scrap about it, you know, and, and, but that was welcomed, you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't a situation where it's like, do you know who the fuck I am? You know, it wasn't that. So you, you got to plead your case and he want he wanted it. Even if like, he wasn't going to go along with you in the end, he still wanted to hear that shit, you know, yeah. because he knew that makes art better. You know, he, he knew that like, that kind of insight and conflict is only going to add to the bigger picture in the end, which is like re really fucking intelligent. You know, when I had sort of just gotten to know him and the, I don't know if we'd started working on the book yet or if, you know, if we had sort of like just gotten to be friends, but he was doing that, uh, that not waving collection, mm -hmm. the, um, with the, you know, techno artist from overseas and they needed a title for it. And, um, and he was like, bro, I need a title for this record. And I was like, well, it's, it's sort of like cross pollination, but it's like these streams intersecting, but the, um, you know, it's kind of dark. Like I'd listen to it and I was like, well, you know, the, when you're out at sea and like two, um, sort of opposing currents hit each other, the, sometimes there's, um, like they don't go, they don't negate each other and they don't go sideways. They, they go down. It's called a downwelling. And he was like, that's it. Thanks, bro. And that was it. And I just named the record like that, you know, and I was just like, I was doing, going through my head, just doing the the writer's like dictionary definition, thesaurus, the going down yeah. the thing. And then when I landed on it, he was like, cool, thanks, bro. And that was it. The, right. Yeah. That sounds exactly like what he would say. <laughs> yeah. The, this like, is, this is wild, yeah. Joe. You the, so I, <laughs> I want to give, all right, there's no good way to go into this story. The, I 
had to get a new phone at some point last year and the and I had I'd never turned off the text messages thing so like it had every text message I'd ever had so it was there was no memory left on the on the phone yeah the, and I I can't remember if I bought this app with the intention of like saving the nudes that had been sent to me or if I bought the app with the intention of downloading like my my conversations with Mark. But the outcome of it was that I lost all the nudes and I kept my entire text message conversations with Mark from the first day. Fair trade. The yeah, I guess so. Right. I I can get more nudes. The uh, but. To go back and read some of those exchanges, listening to his music, you would never know how fucking funny, how sharp, how quick he would just light you up. Oh, you know, yeah. He was just always like, always had a line, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. his his laugh would make me laugh. You know what I mean? Like, that's like one of those laughs, like infectious laugh, which is fucked up, you know, because it's just like, oh, man, no one's no one looks cool in here right now. Like, we're like a couple of goofs, <laughs> you know, he he was great that way. It's it's funny, too, because he had that like really high, almost girlish laugh. That's what and I'm saying. That the, shit was like, whoa, this is he's like uh, cackling, you know, that yeah. shit is funny, man. And, um, and he was somebody who, you know, where it was so clear that, um, it's like he remembered every bad thing ever and, you know, the burden of that knowledge weighed on him, you know, at all times. And, but then when he laughed like that, he would just shed all of it and you could see him. Uh, you know, being a, a fucking little kid, you know, I don't know. Uh, he had that thing about the scam that they ran with the boards, you know, the like right. being a little kid and putting like dog, sh- you know, setting dog shit on fire on the neighbor's porch and then running away. You know, you could see right back into his past to the child that he was, you know, for sure. I mean, you know, like I said before, like most of our time spent together in the studio or wherever was mostly bullshitting you know mostly talking shit you know like honestly the the making of the record was more of an excuse to spend spend a day in the room together like you know five hours talking shit 30 minutes recording vocals (laughs) you know and and that's a lot of records to be honest like with me anyways you know most most of the time when I work with people it's it's more kind of like dialing into uh, who the person is so that I can do the the right job, you know, so that I can like, you know, uh, sort of uh, transmute whatever, uh, you know, experiences that they're like willing to put on the table or kind of like uh, empathetic production, you know, for lack right. of a better term, you know. So to me, that's just more valuable and just, I don't know. To me, I think that's how like good stuff happens, you know, is is through being relaxed and having fun. And, uh, you know, if you get some good art out of it, amazing, you know, if not, at least you had that time. So did you record and engineer and mix and produce like that entire record? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, um, 
I, you know, I talked to him about recording vocals once and he, he was like, you know, fuck, don't listen to anything that the people tell you. You know, he was like, I recorded all, all the Screaming Trees shit um, sitting down with a mouthful of dip into a 57. Yeah. And I was like, I believe you. And also, I don't know if you've noticed this. The rest of us aren't Mark fucking Lanigan. Not everyone can do that. Yeah, he can sing the phone book. You know, yeah. while he's snoring at night and it sounds good, you know, um, I mean, yeah, even the day I knew he was coming in to start vocals, I I asked him before he got there, I was like, sitting or standing? And he's like, sitting. I was like, okay, <laughs> cool. And I just like set up a little world for him, you know, got out the Herman Miller chair, put a little uh, coffee table there. We got ashtrays, you know, and just like built a little world for him and the dude sits down and, you know knocks it out like i don't think we did more than like i know he got annoyed a couple times because i had him do like six or seven takes because i just was like mm, it's not it yet you know like we, we got to play with the cadence here you know um but that wasn't all of them that was only a handful and he would he would humor me you know he mm-hmm. would he would go with it you know because when we started he's like usually uh you know i do about three takes and that's it and like, yeah well you know but we want to make something killer today so like let's just go with it until it's great and he was he was he was down to do it like he would he never gave me any shit he'd be like okay bro you know one more sure bro you know yeah i you know that was one of the things working with him, you know, as a writer that he would just sit down and write for fucking 12 hours. Like, wow. What the fuck is wrong with you, man? Why, why would you ever do that to yourself? Yeah. And the bloodletting. Yeah. The, all right. I have to tell this story. The, so the first, um, first time I went and met him at his house, I was driving this like fucking, double level 1976 avocado and Sherwood green camper van. And then I had to parallel park it on that steep hill in front of his house. Yeah. And he's sitting there in his porch, like just watching me with those fucking crow eyes, Yep. you know, smoking a cigarette and watching me parallel park this thing, like, you know, between two cars that are worth more than my life. And the, and he did it. And then I, you know, I walked out and we're sitting there and, he was so, I mean, you called him a statue. I mean, when Gargoyle came out, I was like, oh, that's you, you know? Yeah, uh, of course. And I was like, I'm going to make this motherfucker laugh. I'm, I'm, I'm going to fucking get you, Mark. Like the, and I have this story, this crazy story about getting shipwrecked when I was 24. And, um, I went to go walk for help and I walked whatever between 24 and 30 miles and five minutes before I got rescued, I was like, well, no help is coming. I'm out of water. I had a fucking milk jug. So I, or no, it wasn't a milk jug. It was the construction helmet. So I pissed in the construction helmet and fucking oh, fuck. drank it. Oh, and, no. and five minutes later, I got rescued. <laughs> and I told him that story and he looked at me and he just went, bro, you, you fucking drank your piss and then he just ha- just cackled just cackled with laughter like he was so he was so delighted 
that I had suffered. <laughs> and the yep. <laughs> so yep. he, flash- would, he would delight in, in uh humorous demise for sure, <laughs> man. And and it, the like the only thing about the only thing funnier than something bad happening to one of his enemies would be something bad happening to one of his friends. Yeah, for, the, sh- for sure. I yeah, I mean so, so like a year later, 18 months later or whatever, and, and he's never never missed an opportunity to be you know for their like getting dinner with his band and be like uh you know wine for you guys mishka's drinking piss tonight you know the like he would never miss an opportunity to twist the blade right and then finally one time he texted me and he was like well bro i finally got my comeuppance you know i was sitting in this hotel room in fucking brussels or whatever you know and i like i'm drinking i'm I'm right working on the book and i'm drinking gatorade and like when i finish one bottle i piss in you know and then i I piss in the other one when i have to uh when i have to go so i don't stop writing and i got the fucking bottles mixed up man (laughs) And, and he like he clearly could not wait to tell me (laughs) like you could tell that he like spit it out like rinsed his mouth out or whatever and then was like fuck i gotta let him know you know (laughs) he just like grabbed his phone whatever it was like yo i drank piss too sucks oh fuck that's great that's fucking great man the it's uh you know at some point i will have the courage to go back and like read through you know those text messages and stuff and I, I, you know, I haven't yet the, but I've, you know, looked yeah. sort of here and there at, at little things and, uh, I haven't been able to do much. I mean, I couldn't even write anything till the, the night of the funeral. You know, I knew, I knew I was supposed to write th- something to say, or just have something to say a month before that even happened. And I avoided it till four in the morning, the night before, you know, like I, you know, it was just like, I, I would anything to not make this be final, you know, that is the hardest writing gig anyone will ever have, you know, yeah. which is the, you know, writing, uh, you know, in memoriam, you know, the, it, I, I'm not a public speaker anyways, you know, like, uh, I think, um, I've only done it a few times. I mean, considering I was a singer in a group, but I wouldn't even talk in between songs, you know, it was yeah. just like, we got nothing to talk about. It's in the music. Um, but like, uh, the last time I actually spoke publicly was at Alvin's funeral, like five years ago, Uh you know? So, uh, you know, it's kind of fucked up that like the next time I have to speak in front of people, it's a similar scenario to someone who's just as close to me, you know? And, uh, I think part, part of that, you know, um, just like realizing that I'm doing this again was just, uh, it's too much, man. You know, it's too much to to say goodbye to people like that. You're a, you're a public speaker who only accepts the most depressing engagements. Pretty possible. much. That's that's my lane for sure. That for what it's worth, man. I mean, I I thought you did great. The I you know I thought it was really admirable. You and your brother, you know, the way that you know, and, and now it's the it's the toughest gig and the easiest crowd. You know, the, um, it was, it was weird for me because the, you know, we're all still kind of just kids inside. And for me, my gateway drug for rock and roll was Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Same. To walk in and see Duff right away. And then 
like I didn't know where to sit and I didn't know a lot of people there. And Slash came and sat right next to me. And I was like, I've been waiting my whole fucking life to tell you how cool I think you are. Yeah. And I'm not going to do it here at, at my friend's funeral. No, I mean, the, it's such a surreal sort of uh, experience letting go of a dear, dear one like that, that um, you're not like being present isn't really like it's it's not possible, I don't think, you know. Yeah, the I, 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 I keep playing like moments from that day out in my mind, the one of the. You know, and it would have been worth it just for this. You know, before we even went into the chapel, the I, um, I, you know, I got to say hi to Shelly, and I got a hug from her, and I was, I told her, you know, that that Mark adored her, you know, and and she knew that, and the, and she said yes, you know, he he told me that every day, and I and I said being around you guys was like being around a couple of, of high school kids yeah. you know, because they were still um, very obviously just so in love with each other, you know, yeah. and, and so into each other and just to, uh, just to get a hug from her and just to like cry together for a second. Like if I'd had to turn around and drive home after that, it would have been, you know, it would have been worth it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Shelly's the love of his life, you know? So it, you know, uh, for me, at least in, in that situation, it was her and his sister and his nephews that I was kind of focused on when I was trying to write something and trying to maybe like shine a light on who their uncle was or who, you know, to me, you know, and it's like, I don't know who you got to see, but I want you to know about that, you know? So if you walk away today, you know that like he was like a good person to me and like a good, good friend and a good big brother, you know? And that's that at the end of the day, that's like all I, you know, that, that became the responsibility in my mind was to make sure that they knew, you know, it's, it's been so wild losing Mark because the, um, I didn't know a lot of his other friends. You know, I, I knew a couple other people at the service. The, But then, you know, we sort of have this um, responsibility or, you know, we're trying to help each other, right? We're trying, yeah. to, we're trying to grieve our friend together. We're trying to get through this thing. We're trying to make sense of it. The I don't know you. You don't know me. We only know each other secondhand through the friend that we lost, you know? So it's, it's this, you know, so it's, we're almost perfect strangers, but we have this um, incredible tie that's so hard to define. Yeah. The, but I, I I guess, you know, I, I was, I was listening to what you were saying about the, the tour you did with him and, you know, the ways in which he bailed you out in your life and looked after you and looked out for you and stuff like that. And I wanted to try and speak to that a little bit, the, because having been 
you know, a drunk for a long time and broke for a long time and a shithead for basically my entire life. You know, there have been so many times in my life where I've had to ask for help from people or accept help from people, you know, being on the road to be able to get, you know, a shower here or um, a couch or a floor or a bed or, um, you know, a, a fresh orange from somebody's tree or, you know, the... Um, that shit does so much for us when we're, when we're on the road, when we're in need of help, the, and I've been, I've been needing so much help for such a long time. And then I'm finally at a point in my life where I'm starting to be able to help other people who are coming through on tour or, yeah. and the, and I realize that it helps us when we help other people too. And the, if you ever felt bad or weird or undeserving of Lanigan looking out for you or or trying to help you, I want to try and tell you that Mm. he got something out of it too, obviously, you know, that maybe that was one of the ways in which he was able to find some peace in his life or some redemption or salvage or something, you know, was, was by trying to help you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I think <clears throat> I think people helped him too. I know people helped him, you know. I mean, even <clears throat> kind of when he would talk about like Kirk Cobain or Lane or someone like that and how those those guys looked after him in a way that maybe he felt undeserving of yeah. at the time, you know. Um but I think it you know, having people do those kinds of kinds of like uh, acts of kindness made such an impression on him that like, I think it was important for him to be able to do the same thing. And yeah, like you said, it, it does do something for you because whenever, I mean, man, my whole, my whole dream has never been to be like famous or rich or anything. My whole dream has always been to just be able to bring the crew with me, like bring the team with me. Like, can I make sure everyone around me can like work on this shit, work on their shit, like sustain life and like live this dream? You know, that's always been the dream since day one. It's like, how can I get me and all my friends paid to do art, you know? And um, he knew that, you know, within himself. He was the same fucking way. He was the same way. He just... He just, he, you know, that's, that's what I meant, you know, when it was like his spirit of generosity, you know, people, uh, you know, really when I, you know, when I saw his collaborations, I, you know, cause Mark's got this like fucking catalog that like, you know, I'll be like trying to unwind for the rest of my life. That's how deep it is. You know, his catalog's yeah. just fucking sprawling. Right. But, um, you know, when I saw that, I was like, is this like, you know, cause I'm looking at it, like you're expending all this energy on all these different people's projects. Like what the fuck, man? Like, can it really be worth it? You know? Cause I'm always kind of like shying away from that sort of shit. You know, I'm just like, uh, yeah. am I, give me some money and I'll think about it or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, I, it just seems like a, a lot of energy because, you know, you want to do a good job. And then I realized, you know, as we were making our record and after he kind of passed on, you know, it really uh, cemented 
the idea that like that really was his gift to people you know like uh he wasn't you know obviously some big shot that was gonna write checks that change people's lives although he would do that if if he could or if like you were stuck or whatever he, i know he would like if i hit him up he would be there but you know his like uh artistic output was his gift to people he cared about his collaboration him letting people in you know and he always saw it as the other way around i know him you know i know that's like you know yeah. he felt like people were doing him a favor by letting you know because he had imposter syndrome like crazy you know just like all of us do you know he would yeah. he's he's like thanks for letting me sing on this you're like what give me a break you know but that really was and i and i know he knew that you know i know he knew he was helping people when he would like sing on their cut because it wasn't always like you know noteworthy collaborators he would if someone was cool and he liked what they were doing he would and he liked them as people he would fucking help he would sing on something and that's what he could do to help you know he wasn't gonna call his business manager he wasn't gonna be like let me introduce you to so-and-so maybe they'll take you under their wing what he did was he used his voice to help people you know and that's just fucking cool as shit to me you know that's just it's very rare honestly it just does not happen a lot at his level or at any level really you know yep the uh I, I had a teacher tell me once, you know, sort of, pull, you know, grab me by the scruff of my neck and, and pull me aside and say, you know, listen, the, the gifts that you're given in life don't belong to you. They belong to all of us. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, don't think that you can just take your gifts and duck out of here. You, you owe it to everyone else. You're part of a community, whether you realize it or not, you know, the, and that's, it's got to go back out into the world. You don't get to keep it, you know, the, yeah. and I think, uh, I think Mark understood that at a very, um, a very elemental level. For you sure. Know, that that's, that's what he had to give. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wild thing. Collaboration is such a fucking like hairy beast just in general, you know, and for him to kind of be able to, uh, um, be able to kind of like slide into different scenarios and make it work no matter what. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of ones that didn't, you know, I heard him complain about certain things where he's like, ah, fuck that. I'm not using that vocal <laughs> and that song's never coming out, you know? But yeah. when you look at the breadth of the fucking catalog, he was able to find his place and make things work with so many people. Like that's, that's insane. You know, that's insane yeah. that someone was really like that anyone could go in and find a place in so many other people's homes and like, you know, be, be valuable. It's fucking cool to me. Yeah. There's a lot to learn in it. You know what I mean? There really is, you know, it's like the kind of thing where he like, all he had to do was sing on a track to like make the track, you know, which is just, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, great lessons there about generosity and, um, giving of yourself and, and, you know, seeing, uh, I, I think not, not to say that we had the same experience, but I, I think, um, 
coming up playing music, being a working artist, one of the things that you have to learn almost immediately is survival skills, you know, to like to put yourself first that you, well, I got to get mine, you know, yeah. and Lanigan as a fucking hustler, he was, you know, his whole life that yeah. um, he learned that, but he also learned, um, he learned that you had to forget some of that, you know, that sure. as soon as you were taken care of, you had to take care of other the other people around you, you know, for, immediately. For, for sure, for sure. I mean, man, my my touring experience over like a decade and a half of be, like living on the road was, uh, I mean, it was just the survival games, twenty four hours a day. You know, it was never easy. Nobody came from like means. You know, nobody. You know, everyone in my group was basically grew up in East LA. And uh, even though we're from L.A., I mean, that's not connected to the industry in any way, really, you know, maybe in a sort of like satellite capacity. But, uh, yeah, the the entire thing was like trying to figure out how the wheels roll for another day, you know, and, you know, that became like, uh, you know, the the number two objective after making something was like, okay, now how do we do it at all for one more day, you know, and uh I mean, it's why I'm not in a band anymore because it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. fucking vicious, you know, it's a vicious thing to do, you know? And, uh, um, yeah, for, for someone like him to like be able to show grace within the same sort of confines, you know, Mark had success, you know, but not to the extent where he didn't have to think about dollars, you know, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he still had, he was hustling till the day was done, you know? And yep. And I get it, you know, I'm, I'm the same way, but there's a, there's a balance that you have to figure out how to like, uh, hustle, but not hustle people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hustle the work, but not the humans. Totally. Totally. Cause no one likes that feeling, you know? Yeah. And like he didn't surround himself by people who were doing that anyways. You yeah. know what I mean? He yeah. just, you know, I find it just as insufferable where it's like, you're just fucking hustling me, man. Like this has nothing to do with anything. You know, as soon as you smell that, it's like, you know, it's like someone's fucking halitosis is up in your grill, you know, and you're just, you can't take it, you know? So yeah, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's ballet really, you know, Joe, where, uh, where can people find you online? Where can they find your stuff? What, uh, what do you have coming up next? I'm going to have a website one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> you're on uh you're on Twitter. That's yeah. kind of sort, almost sort like of. having a thing. I'm so terrible at all of it at this point. Uh, you know, it speaks well for you as a human being. Social media fucked this world up, you know, like yeah. in a big way, at least from my perspective, you know. I'm just I'm not good at it. You know, I, I see how people have conversations and shit on there and it's cool, but I can't give a fuck about what's trending or any of that really, you know, um, it's just like, uh, you know, I like got into music so I didn't have to stand around a fucking water cooler with a bunch of goons and that's what it all seems like to me. So I'm just like, eh, but yeah, you know, uh, Twitter is from my perspective, it's a tool like the rest of them where you can like, uh, you know, uh, give people clues as to where to find content that you've created or art that you're working on. 
Um, so yeah, there's that. There's Instagram. I think the last time I posted on Instagram was a year ago, but uh, I, you know, I put stories up here and there. Um, but you know, I, you know, I feel like uh, I don't know. It's yeah, it's a weird thing. It's it, to me, I we're working on a new website. I kind of, I, my mind is moved back to websites because it's a one way conversation. And that's yeah, what I, yeah, that's what I like about, you know, the early internet really is like, uh, you know, I'm working on a film about buddy head and the Icarus line with my, okay. you know, longtime best friend collaborator, Travis Keller, who did buddy uh-huh. head right around the same time as the Icarus line. And we're, we're just in kind of the uh, embryonic stages of like this film because he, he, um, he documented like the majority of what we did. Wow. Yeah. So we have, I don't know. I think it was like 400 hours of footage, you know, everything from like the Stevie Ray Vaughan thing to like spray painting the strokes bus, like all that kind of like headline garbage, you know, that the band was known for instead of music. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, so we're trying, we're trying to like, you know, unwrap that thing. And at the same time, I think we're trying to paint somewhat of a portrait, or at least this is what it seems like to me so far, of kind of what the world was like as the internet, um, you know, came out of the void and started to change things. And, you know, just what it what it was like when it was kind of the Wild West of it, and it was more of a one-way conversation. You know, there was chat rooms, there was things like this. But for the most part, it was... Uh, you know, you were beaming information out yeah. more than, than taking it in. And the information you were taking in was still kind of in a real life capacity. It was your circle, the people around you. And then you were filtering that out through your, you know, through your various channels. And, um, you know, so that's, that's what I've been working on with him. And, uh, besides that, a lot of film stuff, you know, um, directing music videos for people, and um, there's some some other some other uh, material with Mark that I have that I'm, uh, awesome. I'm you know that's like on the burner right now that I'm kind of just sort of uh, solidifying the 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 concept of it so that when I go in it's easy you know uh, yeah. if I know what something is before I get in there then I don't have to think about it and it just flows so there's that and. You know, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm up to. You know, it's like uh, the survival games continues while I'm like avoiding having a real job. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for doing this, man. I I really appreciate it. It's been um, it's just been awesome to talk to you and to sort of wade through all this shit together. Thanks for having me, man. Awesome. All right, I'll be in touch, my brother. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, hello there. Uh, This is uh, Steve Jobs, the uh, the guy who invented the Apple. As as you may know, I do a a podcast thing where I um, just randomly record things about my favorite podcasts. And the Mishka Shabali podcast, absolutely one of them. Everybody over here at Apple, um, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, all the other billionaires working side by side in the factory here. We all love the Mishka Shabali podcast, and we know that you love it too. So what we would love for you to do is head on over to the, uh, what, what is it called? Any, 
the I think it's just the podcasts thing. I don't know. Go over to Apple Podcasts and please uh, rate and review my podcast. I mean the Mishka Shabali podcast. Give it five stars. It's it's incredible, groundbreaking work. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, in the running for a PBD. Um, Peabody, a MacArthur. I don't. Know, it's it it should win a prize. That's how good it is. Now, just five stars. Thank you, Steve Jobs, signing off. <laughs>